I'd like to begin with a word of prayer as we continue with this study in 2 Corinthians. So if you would join with me, let's pray together. Lord, may our focus be on what you want to say to us this afternoon. May it be that truly your word is applied to life because it is the living word. I ask, Lord, that uh, there would be clarity and thought. There would be uh, the ability to speak distinctly and, and clearly, and that what is shared is not the thoughts of a man, but truly uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, anointed by your power, and to accomplish the work that you want to do in each one of our lives. And I pray that in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, we're going to continue uh, really kind of building on what Jeff Wall shared yesterday as we will be looking this afternoon at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, and then reading through into chapter 2 uh, to verse 4. I want to read that to you, and, uh, and if you want to follow along, that's fine if you have your Bibles handy. Beginning with 2 Corinthians 1, 23. But I called God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we worked with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make, my, make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those whom I should have made me, should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. This passage is actually a conclusion of the section that Jeff began yesterday in chapter 1, uh, verse 15. And if you have an NIV Bible or an ESV and maybe some of the other translations, a lot of times there's captions above uh, those passages of Scripture. And in my Bible, and maybe yours as well, it reads, uh, change of plans. And that's what Paul in some ways is addressing in these few verses together. Um, he's writing the church to explain why he is not going to visit them. Now, Paul had considered that, and again, Jeff kind of touched upon that yesterday, as to where he had planned a trip to Macedonia and stopping there on his way to Macedonia and then the possibility of stopping uh, again as he returns uh, from Macedonia. But he's reconsidered that uh, he feels that he cannot uh, follow through with what he first intended to do. And his reconsideration of his plans uh, played right into the hands of those who were opposing him in Corinth. There, were that, there was this group of people who had come against Paul, was trying to undermine everything that Paul had teach, taught and, and preached, and in many ways wanting to control the church. They were using Paul's decision not to come as an evidence of indecision. 
they would indicate that this is evidence, again, of a man who couldn't keep his word, uh, a man who was wishy-washy, a man who was unreliable or even fickle. And so in many ways, uh, there was a misunderstanding right away of why Paul would choose not to uh, come to Corinth. However, these closing words of the chapter and the beginning words of chapter 2 are, are much more than just an explanation to the people in letter form of why he was not going to come. And it's revealed primarily in one verse, and that's in 2 Corinthians 2.4, and I want to read it to you again. He wrote, For I, I wrote you, I wrote to you, out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundance of love that I have for you. I want to read that verse again, and this time using the New Living Bible translation. Um, I think in some ways the, the, the uh, more contemporary language gives us an appreciation of the, the heart or the emotion that was uh, expressed in Paul's words. Let me read it again from the NLT. How painful it was to write that letter, heartbroken. I cried over it. I didn't want to hurt you, but I wanted you to know how very much I love you. Paul is referring to a letter that was written previous to the proposed visit. Now, we can make some, I guess, connection that could have been 1 Corinthians. But the thought is that after the first the letter uh, the first letter was written, as we recognize 1 Corinthians, that there was a visit to address some of the problems that were mentioned in 1 Corinthians. And then after that visit, there was what would be considered a severe letter. And Paul doesn't know what the status is of their response to that severe letter. And so he is hesitant to, to go and, and deal with the problems because of the hurt the last visit had caused and not knowing what has already been, I guess, received as hurt, possible hurt, by the second letter. The visit that Paul initiated following the reports of the troubles in Corinth, um, the, the problems he had addressed were enormous. It, it, it represented a total dysfunction within the church. There were factions within the church. There was the misuse of the spiritual gifts. There, there were questions that arose uh, about marriage. There were lawsuits among the membership, one against another. There were members that were living open in sin, and there was no exercise of discipline. There was even the question of the resurrection. There were false teachers that had crept into the congregation, and they were disrupting the church, and they were teaching false doctrine and, and practicing uns, uh, unscriptural uh, habits or, or um, uh, behavior. The ordinances of the church themselves were being abused, and they flaunted their own egos by, again, representing the, the spiritual gifts that they had in some ways being more superior than the gifts of others, as well as claiming themselves to be learned and knowledgeable. Paul believed that a second visit would be seen as an authoritarian approach to somehow press the people to... to uh, submit themselves to 
his expectations. But he highlights in the passage we just read that he, he acknowledges their faith. And, and, and he wants to be careful that he isn't going to be recognized as someone who is going to demand what he wants. But more importantly, he wants them to recognize that everything that he's doing, he's doing out of love for them. A note here, it wasn't so much that Paul was fearful of the need for rebuke or reproval. That wasn't the concern. His concern was that if it were required, again, hurt would be piled upon hurt. And there would not be the ability to hear what he was really trying to say, which obviously was a, um, a, uh, a connection, these people, through love. Um, I, uh, if, you, if you want to kind of get a feel for this as to, to why he is so hesitant, he says uh, in verse 24 of chapter 1, not that we would lord over your faith, but we would work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Paul was not looking to make himself as someone who was going to come in and control. Paul was, a, was adopting the, the position of working with the people, encouraging the people, loving the people. Paul made up his mind that he was not going to go back to Corinth and pile on again uh, a heaviness of rebukes, or, or censorship, or, or in, in many ways, just keep on pounding or harping upon the disorders that were obviously uh, present among the people. He'd already done that. He had done it with a visit, and it was a painful visit. He had done it through a letter. He hasn't been, he hasn't been informed of how they have even responded to that letter. So he is being cautious as to where he goes from there. This really brings me to the point that I think I want to make as we look at these verses together. There is, I think, evidence in how Paul is addressing the situation out of true love for the people uh, of Corinth, of how he sees the time and the place for reproof, for rebuke, for correction, uh, for guiding people uh, and, and addressing the problems that was within, was in the, within the fellowship. William Barclay, in his commentary in this passage, I think hits right on it and might help us understand where Paul is coming from. Barclay writes, and I want to read, read this to you. Barclay writes, and I quote, he, and that's referring to Paul, he used severity and rebuke very unwillingly. He used, the, he used them only when he was driven to use them and there was nothing else left to do. There are some people whose eyes are always focused to find fault, whose tongues are always tuned to criticize, in whose voice there is a rasp and an edge. Paul was not like that. In this, he was wise. If we are constantly critical and fault-finding, if we are habitually angry and harsh, if we rebuke far more than we praise, the plain fact is, that even our severity loses its effect. It is discounted because it is so constant. The more seldom a man rebukes, the more effective it is when he does. In any event, the eyes of the true Christian man seeks ever for things to praise and not for things to condemn. 
When Paul did rebuke, he did it in love. He never spoke merely to her. I think within the church today, there is an absence of the need to address those things that are painful, hurtful, divisive. The exercise of rebuke is something that has a place in the life of the church. But I believe in so many ways we fall in one of two camps. And I think the first camp is probably the more familiar one as to where in order to avoid conflict, in order to avoid any kind of misunderstanding, we avoid the problem altogether. We don't want to address the problem hoping somehow it's going to go away. The problem with that is, number one, it isn't true peace within the fellowship when the problem is ignored. It's just setting it off to the side so it can grow to be even a larger problem later down the road. The other way that we can respond, and I think this is the example that Paul sets before us, is that any time we have to deal with a problem within the fellowship, a division within the fellowship, may it be understood that it is going to be done as an act of love, concern for the body at whole, as well as for the individual or individuals involved. The beautiful thing about it is that when we set aside our agendas, when we set aside our preferences, and we are giving thought to really what is the ultimate good for the others in the group, what is, what is, what is congruent with the teachings of the gospel, we will then know when it's time to speak. And we will also know when it's time to be silent. You've heard it said that the truth hurts. And that's the truth. Truth can hurt. However, as needful as the truth may be, we must be very, very careful never to use the truth purposefully to hurt someone. As I was preparing for the devotional this afternoon, um, I came across, uh, well, it was a cross-reference that was in the studies, and it, and it led me to Revelation 3, uh, 19 and 20. The interesting thing is this is a letter to a church. These, these two verses are in a letter to a church, to the letter, or to the church of Laodicea, the very words of Christ to the church that was lukewarm to a church that couldn't address the problems that was within them. And listen to what Jesus says to that church after he points out this issue of being lukewarm, uncommitted. Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. It's necessary to exercise rebukes and reproof as it's done in love, just as Christ is wanting to do for us and his church. And as you read on in this passage, there's a great, great statement that Jesus makes about what the outcome is as we respond to his rebuke and to his discipline. He says, 
Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will eat with him and I will be with him. That's the beauty of us being honest enough among ourselves together to address those issues that are divisive, address them to where they are. It can be painful, but it also can be the very thing as we do it in love that brings us together having that oneness in Christ. I'm convinced that the true minister of the gospel is the one who understands the necessity of rebukes and reproval, but also understands when and how. And the when is discerned through prayerful consideration, and the how is in the name of Jesus Christ, loving them, loving the church, just as Jesus loved.